the whole 1040 window that we pray about and that we hear stories about on 3ABN is a stronghold for the devil. It's a place where they are praying differently. It's a place where they are asking for the Lord's will to be done. And they're not asking for much from us in America. They're just simply saying, when they're asked for what help they want, they say simply, pray for us. And some of these are Sunday keepers, yes, but there are Seventh-day Adventist Christians in these areas as well. Our brothers and sisters. Is this what it means to be a Christian? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think of prayer during times of trouble, we've been praying during 10 days of prayer in relative ease, comfort, by phone, in our homes. And yet, as we look at Revelation, as we look at the book of Daniel, there is this God of war, there is this bloodshed that will take place. And Lord, we want to be able to say that our hearts are ready and right with you today, so that if that were to happen tomorrow, here in America, we would simply say to others, just pray for us. Pray that our faith will hold fast. Pray that we can explain it to our children so they can stand firmly for you. And then like that little girl in the story, she said to those who were trying to kill her, we forgive you. Give us that type of prayer. Prayer with the second coming, the advent of Christ in view. Give us Advent prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I thought of that story, I thought about there in some of those countries, the crowd will come along and tell you, give up Jesus or die. Or pay a severe tax so that you will be in poverty and your family will suffer for Jesus. Would I be willing to go through those type of hardships for Christ? People over there are not even asking, will I be able to stand firm from Jesus? They're saying, can I today stand firm for Jesus? In the first century, that was a similar situation where Christianity began to permeate the Roman world, and yet persecution began to ring out, first even from religious people, established religious circles. And we find in the book of Acts that the Christians chose to go against that crowd and to stand for the cross of Christ. And then we go on down, and as last week we looked at Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, and how he stood firm for Jesus because he saw a heavenly resource. Now I want to consider then how they prayed and asked God to supply those resources for their lives. We're going to Acts chapter 3 and 4. We find that John and Peter have been able to heal a man. They went to the temple to pray. They heal somebody. They finish telling the crowd about Jesus. And then we get over here to Acts chapter 4, after we get done with chapter 3, and we find opposition arises. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Not counting women and children. And so we find Pentecost has a great revival. 
Here we find in chapter 4, 5,000 men. We get to chapter 6 with Stephen, and there's a great persecution that cuts off 2,000 of them. But this great revival. If you notice, it says that the Sadducees were annoyed, or in the Greek, exhausted. They were just beside themselves. They didn't know what to do with this group. They kept preaching Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And of course, there's some historical significance there. We find there were groups that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But notice the number of people, 5,000. Imagine a revival like that. Imagine that taking place in different places in our world today. We know it's taking place in Africa. When I was there in 2003, we had 200 and some people baptized at my meetings, and you go around, and there was thousands in one Sabbath joining the church there in Zimbabwe. So we know it's happening still. But also imagine then that people's trades are changed, their jobs, they begin to not work on Sabbath. It begins to permeate the culture all around, and then what happens? People begin to notice and to oppose the change that's taking place. Opposition happens here as well. And it says, after they've been arrested, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest. Hey, we've seen him before in the Gospels. Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now they're speaking of the individual who was healed there on the temple grounds. But also, tucked in here, who has who given you authority to heal? And who has given you this authority to preach? It doesn't come out and say it in the text, but it makes you wonder if they're also questioning their preaching. And they told them, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more anyone, to anyone in this name. So we find it, if you go on down from verse 7 and onward, you find they testify about Jesus, and they're told not to testify anymore. So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Imagine someone telling you not to talk about Jesus anymore. They'd have to see your religion was false or some kind of a sect or some kind of cult or somehow against their, their establishment. But imagine if that happened to you. Would you or would you not continue to speak about Jesus? And then they begin to threaten your family, like in that video. She talked about her children. It could even threaten daddy. It could even threaten you. Would you stand firm against a command like that? The decisions we make today will merely confirm the decisions we will make in the future. Revelation 13 makes it very clear that we will be facing this type of questioning, this type of command. Well, if you look here in the text, what's their answer? That little girl in the movie, she said, we forgive you. I mean, imagine a little girl having to be put in that situation. It's a horrendous thought. But she forgives them. She won't bow to Allah. She only bowed to Jesus. And Peter and John similarly make a statement to this group. If you uh, go on down through the text, you'll find Leona's prayer is very similar here in Acts. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You get to Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they eventually continue preaching, and they say we have to obey God rather than men, and so their statement is very clear. We are not going to go along with the commands of men. We are going to obey God rather than men, and that's really where the dividing line takes place. When the laws of the land and the laws of man conflict with the laws of God, we stand firm upon the laws of God, the ways of God. His command trumps all commands in the universe. He's the one, when this earth is all said and done, that we come before, either in the first resurrection if we've passed away or the second resurrection of condemnation. I want to be ready with him. I want to follow his commands rather than those around me. And I think we have friends in this process, do we not? If you look here, it says they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests had said. Friends. Very close word that means fellow countrymen. Don't we feel like we're on a journey together to a better land? Don't we feel like we're fellow countrymen, that we are going to be there together with Jesus? Back then, you find the term was applied to the nation of Israel and how they saw each other as part of the same nation or the same army or like soldiers were considered fellow countrymen, fellow soldiers. Do we see ourselves as that much acquainted with each other? That we would be willing to put each other's well-being above our own. If somebody arrested me today, took me into an interrogation room, would I think enough about everyone here to say, you know what, they can beat me to a pulp, but I will not say anything against my brothers and sisters. That type of commitment begins now with us saying we will not say things against our brothers and sisters now in times of peace. We love each other that much. We value each other that much that we will not say it now nor then by God's grace. They saw each other as that close together that they would not divide themselves they would stand firm together. They were friends, fellow countrymen, fellow soldiers, linked to each other. The success of the group depended upon that relationship with each other. And it says they lifted their voices together. Yes, I'm sure Peter and them preached sometimes to a group like this, but oftentimes you find in the book of Acts, it's that united prayer together. Them coming before the throne room together, like a delegation can you imagine Satan tries to hinder the work of God and God has these delegations. This whole group from Anderson is praying, coming before his throne, and they're bringing the petition and saying, Lord, change us individually. Change us as a church. Help us to be what you would have us to be. Give us the mission and vision you'd have us to do here in this area. Unite our hearts. Can Satan shut that petition down? He could. He could start silencing our voices one by one, so then we're just left with a partial delegation. But imagine if we united together, came before his throne. That's what the 10 days of prayer was supposed to be. United together, seeking God and saying, lead us as a church. Lead me as the pastor. Lead me as the ministry leader. Lead me. And you just fill your name in there. Lead us. Satan could argue against that, couldn't he? But he really couldn't have much leg to stand on. Heaven has a delegation confirmed by two or three witnesses. The matter is confirmed. And God says, they've given me permission to work there in that church, in that community, in that state, in that world. I'm going to work. I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit and work. And that's what we find happening here eventually. 
And then he said, and, and if, if you notice the beginning of the prayer, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in him. Isn't that right out of the Ten Commandments? Isn't that part of the three angels' message? Isn't this, in a way, then, an Advent prayer, an end-of-time prayer to the Lord? We could be, especially if we utter it at this time in earth's history, pointing people to the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. We come to him and say, you are the despotes. We may have a president of the United States or a representative in certain assemblies or houses, but you are the president of us. The word despotes was Lord, and he used it for Caesar. They're saying, Caesar may think he rules, but really, you are the one that's in charge of us. The stately governments don't know it sometimes or don't want to acknowledge it, but they're merely carrying out the plans of heaven. Whether they're going against the church in adverse ways or whether they're holding back winds of strife in some ways or, or degradation in our society, God is using people even in the systems of today. And it's interesting they use the word despotes instead of kyrios, which we find usually they use for Lord. So Jesus then is in control. They're recognizing, yes, there's earthly governments. They think they're in control, but really, you're the one that's in control. That's a beautiful prayer. Imagine praying that in Syria when the people come into your home. Yes, they think they're in control, but really, God is in control. And then 425 Speaking of this, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and said to by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. Now you get the different word there for Lord. And against his anointed one. So they're praying and saying, Lord, they have united against you. They, have, they think they're the rulers of this world, but you are actually the one who's in control. And they think that they can somehow shut down your work, but we are coming to you asking you to work. They've gathered together, but we've gathered together. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. The very ones who had imprisoned them just a short time before this, Annas, Caiaphas, they were there at the time of Jesus. They were there in agreement with it. They're still standing against it, Lord, but we're standing together for you. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Even what they thought was their plan and their way was actually a fulfillment of the prophecies of God. And the word predestined is the plan beforehand. That's simply what it means. God saw back before the world began how they would treat Jesus. He, you find that everything down to how they would treat him and spit upon him and pierce him was all prophesied, and they followed it like a plan. And they're acknowledging this as they're praying together. They're saying they think they're fulfilling their plan, but really it's going to fulfill your plan. You had predestined it to take place. But as I notice that text, if you go back there, it talks about the nations raging, if you go on back. And it mentions in verse 25, why did the Gentiles rage, the people plot in vain? You go compare that to, to Psalm 2, and that's a, almost a direct quotation from the Psalms. They are praying the Scriptures. 
They're recognizing that God is the sovereign. And if you go to Psalm 2, it reveals more to this. Why do the nations rage, people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Can you imagine that? Can the world really go against the plan of God to usher in the end of this world? Look at every single would-be ruler who's tried, and you will find the answer to that. Just like in Daniel 2, they would not cleave together. It's following the plan like a blueprint. And imagine somebody who's watching the overall span of history and seeing people trying to change it, and, and, and just, you'd laugh at that. It's not going to be changed. It's going to go the way that it's been planned. We do have a part to play. But the one who sits in heaven, and the last time we saw, he actually stood in heaven. Jesus did when he was judging Stephen innocent. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who's that king? It's this anointed one. And who's that anointed one? In that book of Acts, it's Jesus. He's the real ruler. He's the one who's even higher than Caesar. In verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Don't get hung up on that too much. It's just a way of installing a ruler back then. It's, it's court language. It's not saying that, it's not saying that somehow uh, Jesus was just begotten like a normal human being. It's actually talking about an, an, uh, some kind of installment. The, king, the person who was installed could have been alive sometime before. That could have existed before that. But this is an official way of saying, here is my heir to the throne. I mean, how could you declare someone an heir to the throne if that's the very day that they were conceived or begotten? It's talking about how in the plan of God, there was a certain point where Jesus would be installed as ruler of this world. He would take it back from the one who had stolen it. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Doesn't that include us? If that's all the way back in the Psalms, and they're still praying in the book of Acts, and eventually their message goes to the world, and we're now proclaiming a message to call people back to the Creator, then this is involving us. The ends of the earth will be our, His possession. Each one of us, then, will be treasured in His eyes. He saw us long ago. He called us by name. And look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The, almost the exact same words out of Daniel chapter 2, where that rock comes and destroys the image, dashes it to pieces. And so Psalm 2 is an Advent prayer. It's describing a time when Jesus would come, when he would be the king of not only the world but of his church, and the plan would be fulfilled, and eventually he would dash the nations to pieces. So the ones who are gathered there praying are just saying, Lord, come. Fulfill your plan. Rule in our hearts. Rule in our group. Rule in this world. It's a real, if you take a rock and you throw it into a lake, it kind of, there's a ripple effect. They're recognizing that, yeah, things are happening right where they're at, but they're recognizing they're part of a bigger plan. And they're praying for God to fulfill that plan. 
Now therefore, O kings, verse 10, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And imagine all of that. Describing the Lord as coming and, and destroying the nations and taking vengeance, but here, tucked in here, is this little promise. Blessed or happy are those who take refuge in him. Being persecuted for your faith, you can find refuge. Finding times when things aren't exactly going the way you thought they should, you can find refuge. Struggles of life, you find refuge. And then it says, blessed. You can be happy in the midst of everything that's going on. So in Acts, the Christians saw the persecutors coming, and they saw them as not opposing them, but opposing the one who rules the universe. And how long is that really going to be able to take place? I mean, is there really a chance for that succeeding? There is no chance for that succeeding. They recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the one who knows about their situation, who knows about the opposition against them, and they're standing firm for him. They're remembering him. In essence, they're quoting a psalm that is pointing to the return of Jesus, the end of all nations. They're praying an Advent prayer and asking Jesus to judge. And so that's just what we find in the book of Acts is an echo of this psalm. And that's really an echo of the prayer of Jesus, where Jesus says in John 14, he goes to prepare a place for us, and if he goes to prepare a place for us, he will come again. Or he says, I am coming back. And he prays that we would be one before that occurs. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? When is that ever going to fully take place? If you're uttering that prayer, it hasn't taken place yet. You're looking forward to it taking place sometime in the future when God's will will be done throughout the earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' prayer itself was an Advent prayer, a, a coming prayer where he would, he would return and things would be according to his will. There would be no more persecution. There would be no more killing. God himself would be with us and be our God. And so they want to see Jesus reign not only in their lives, but in the world. They want him to somehow reach Annas and Caiaphas and the people around them. They, in the book of Acts, they want God as their refuge in times of trouble. And like that video, wouldn't we, if we were faced with that same equation of persecution, seek only God for help? We could turn to each other for some help, but really, when no one else is around, it's God. And when everybody is around, it's still God. There's an interesting uh, little article I came across. Tucker wrote it in the Signs of the Times, August of 1957. A member one time gave me this. She was asking me if there's anything that I was wanting research on, and I said, well, eventually I want to do something in the book of Acts. So she gave me this, this little quotation about prayer. The devil's chief concern is to keep the people of God from praying. He does not care so much about our missionary campaigns, provided we do not pray. He does not fear our liberalities to missions nor our charities at home, as long as we are little in prayer. 
goes on, Satan is determined that we shall go in weakness. He is determined that the church shall never make that proper contact with the great dynamo above. That is what they're trying to do as they're praying in that room together. They're trying to make contact with the dynamo above. They know that things are raging all around them, but they're trying to reach up to heaven and saying, I trust you. We, we trust you as a group. We want to make that contact. They recognize they need that power in their daily lives. And so we can connect as well. And in the book of Acts, we find God responds. All right, young people, here's your scripture for your worksheet. Acts 4, 29. Acts 4, 29 through 31. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You catch all of that. There they were facing persecution. There they were, united in prayer as friends, fellow soldiers in Jesus, looking for a better land. There they were, recognizing that even the ones around them that were persecuting were fulfilling the prophetic plan of God, and that Jesus was truly king of this world. And they say, Lord, our simple request is, let us proclaim it, your word, with boldness. Look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand by what authority were they doing this? It really wasn't them doing it at all. It was God stretching forth his hand and working through them. They were opposing God when they were denying the miracles that they were doing. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, notice they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been praying for that for 10 days. And if you have been filled with the water of life, you become a fountain. But a spring continually needs to be, groundwater needs to be replenished, does it not? We know about that here in the North State. It needs to be replenished. We need that continual filling to be able to give it out to others. And so we need the same thing. We need that. We could bypass the earthquake if you want, but nonetheless, we need the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so that prayer of Leanna offers as she offered herself, her husband, and family to God in Syria, she's just pretty much saying, God, fill me, use me. How about us? Can he take control of our lives? Could he use us to usher in the prophetic end of this world? Peter makes it clear by li living godly lives, but this prayer makes it clear that we could be praying to God and connect with him, and he could impact the world around us. In your bulletin today was a, a sheet. It looks something like this. It says, Advent Prayer. And in your newsletter that's out there in the foyer, it lists a whole bunch of ways you can stay connected with God. They were wanting to stay connected with that great dynamo in heaven. And we should be doing the same as well. And as I look at this, this is your assignment, if you will, or if you want something to apply this more to your life, take that Advent prayer sheet. Notice it starts off with a time of praise or singing to the Lord. Eventually, you find yourself praying for what's going on in your life then you pray locally. Then you go outside and pray outside of your local area. 
Then you go statewide. You turn it over, you go nationally and internationally. You're praying for those Christians like they've asked. Please pray for us in the persecution zones. And then if time permits, you read a passage on prayer like the Lord's Prayer, and you pray that Advent prayer. He who testifies these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Yes, come, Lord Jesus. That's what I mean by Advent prayer. And I remember as I have taken and used something similar to this over the years, I would always find myself gravitating towards a prayer partner, someone of the same gender, and I would meet with them periodically. This takes a whole hour if you do the whole thing. But every once we would get together, and we would be praying, and then it began to permeate not only our own personal lives, but our churches that we were at. If we prayed in Advent prayer, could it change our world? Could it shake our church and make it be what he wants it to be? I think it could. And so take that, find a prayer partner, someone that you can pray with on a weekly basis. That, maybe it's not 10 days in a row like our 10 days of prayer, but it's something to keep it the prayer focus. Keep that connection with the dynamo above. And to pray, Lord, come soon. This world is messed up. And so take that, apply it to your life. Hopefully it's useful to you. But you know, I think about it, some people are not ready for that commitment today. Those of us who've been around a little longer, we feel like our relationship with God is somewhat strong, and we could take that step and do that hour of prayer. But there may be some today who haven't even asked the Lord into their lives. And after 10 days of prayer, the message of that day was salvation. It was come to the Lord. See what he has done for you. That's what Revelation describes at the last call in earth's history, is a call to drink the water of life freely. The church issues that to the world. And if you look down in verse 21 of Revelation 22, it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with all of you. I don't just want to experience this myself. I want every one of us, wherever we come from, some of us have given our hearts to the Lord before, some of us have not. I want us all to experience that kindness and recognize that he loves each one of us dearly. And he wants all of us to have that refuge, that peaceful place that we can go through during times of trouble. And so I'm going to be extending a, a song here in a few minutes that will help all of us apply this, but especially those of you who have not accepted Christ as your Savior. Today is a day of salvation. Let's not wait until he comes in the clouds to hear that call. Revelation's call is issued by the church, and the church is saying to each one of us, we can drink the water of life freely. Each one of us can experience it. And then you will pray, Lord, come. That's an Advent prayer. Advent meaning coming. Come, Lord Jesus. And so we know Jesus was one of us. We know that he made our world long before that. We know that his name was Mighty God, Counselor, Prince of Peace. Revelation says that our sins, we be loosed or freed from our sins because of his blood. In order to bleed for us, that means he would have to become one of us. And so he did become one of us. We know that he was born. And if you want information about whether Jesus literally existed or not, there's lots of, there's, there are historical documents that prove that. And then, why did he become one of us? To save us. Satan could say, well, you know what? Murray's the one who sinned. I want him. He is mine. I will never let go of him. Well, it's obvious he's let go of me, or I wouldn't be standing here today. So what has happened? What has happened is I've recognized what Christ has done for me. I've recognized that Jesus 
in my place died upon that cross. And because of that, what we find is the trespasses that were against us were nailed to the cross. My sin was nailed to the cross. Your sin was nailed to the cross. You died years ago if you choose to believe it. And he gives you a new name. And, and, and Revelation makes it clear that there's a name beyond this world on a rock for each one of us. Heaven no longer sees you, sees Jesus. And so a transaction occurred so that you could be let free and I could be let free, let go as well. That we might become the righteousness of God. Not in of ourselves, but of Him. And so we find that happened at the cross, even before the cross, our sin was being laid upon Jesus in Gethsemane. We find as He's being weighed down, imagine all the guilt and all the shame and everything you feel when you do something wrong, especially when you separate from the Lord. Imagine all of that being laid upon you from the beginning of your life up until now. All of those thoughts and feelings being laid upon you in one moment, what would it do to you? It would literally probably drive you insane. Imagine it all being laid upon one person for the guilt and shame of the whole world. He became sin for us. It's a huge price. And it says that he even sweat blood to the point where he, he felt like he was going to die. And so today, Peter, if he was here, it says they went forth with boldness, proclaiming the word of God. They were praying for that. And after that, you get to chapter 5, and he keeps proclaiming it. He goes against the loss of the land. He keeps proclaiming the word of God. And he keeps calling people to this Jesus. And if he were here today, he would say, this is what Jesus has done for you. He loves you that much. He doesn't want you to walk alone. He has a purpose for you. I've met people sometimes who are wayward and they, God used them years ago. And for some reason they find themselves in some situations and they wonder, God, can you ever forgive me? Could I ever start over with you? And the answer is yes. He has a hope and a future for each one of us. He calls us to that. He calls us by name. Find that purpose in Him. See your true value. If the King of the universe, that's above all the earthly rulers in this world, and all the rulers in the universe, would die for you and for me, then how valuable are you and me? He owns everything. And He was willing to give it all up for each one of us. If one of you chooses to follow Him, the value of you is eternal. If you live forever, eventually you would outlive every person's life. If you stacked them all together in earth's history, from the beginning of time to the second coming of Jesus, you would outlive everybody who's ever lived if you live for eternity. That's huge value that he places on each one of us. And so Peter would say simply, Repent and be baptized. Turn to him, every one of you, and he'll wash away your sins. And so today is the day of salvation. We can pray for the coming of Jesus, but we still have today. Pray for the coming of Jesus, but also say, where is my heart at with him today? Today until he comes.
this song I'm going to play in a moment here talks about today being the day of salvation. And it's going to have a prayer up on the screen, so we'll darken the lights in a moment here. And as you read that prayer, some of you would say, you know what, I'm going to recommit my life to Him. Yes, I want to do that. But some of you, I know, because the Lord told me to put this slide in here, I was going to have a different song. Some of you need to accept salvation today. What that means is, you're saying, God, guide my life. What that means is, you're saying, I want to have victory over certain areas of my life as well. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. Guide me today. And that is really the beginning of the rest of that prayer sheet. If He's not guiding you, there's no point in you praying the whole rest of that. He needs to guide us each today. So I'm going to play this song, and as it plays, you can be in a time of prayer. You can recommit your life to Jesus. And if you haven't given your heart to Him for the first time, then look at the prayer up on the screen. It's something that I prayed long ago when I was laying down on a mat in a, in a cell block. You can pray the same prayer and he can work a miracle in your life. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you teach us how to pray. We're thankful that we can pray that you will come soon. 
But there are people here today that need to get serious regarding your direction in their lives. You have a purpose for each one. And so, Lord, if there's someone here who needs to get on the path of eternal life, or maybe they think they are, but there's areas that they need victory in their lives, that you would bring salvation to them today, that you would show them a greater way. You would provide power as they ask you for eternal life. Lord, guide each one of us to make that commitment and guide each one of us, if we've made it, to recommit and say, oh, Lord Jesus, I want to share that with those around me. I want others to see your salvation. I want others to say with me, come, Lord Jesus. I want others to pray an Advent prayer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.